Well, this is um, part three of spiritual victory. Um, our passage starts in Galatians five sixteen, where Paul writes, and this is this is what I say: Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you wish. If we are led by the spirit, we are not under the law. And the Galatian church was being put back under the law, under a yoke of bondage. And Paul exhorts them to stand fast in their freedom and not to be entangled again with the law. And the temptation was to think that if I'm not under the law, then I'm under some kind of a license to live how I want to without any restraints. And Paul corrects that and says that there's something that guides our freedom in Christ, and that's love. And that's what protects our freedoms from being an abusive tool in our lives that keeps us from self-indulgence. So he says in 5.13, he says, only don't let your liberty be a license or a platform on occasion for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So I've got to filter everything in my life through that lens. Am I loving people? Am I serving people? Because that's how I use my freedom in Christ. And then he, he warns them in this next section that even though we've been bought by the blood of Christ, we still have our members that are on this earth, our physical bodies, our unredeemed humanness is still with us, and these things, things are, are, are combative. They're against one another. And so he assures the believers in Galatia, that if you will just walk in the Spirit, you will not, it's a double negative, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And what they had inadvertently done is they had reintroduced the law, and we've studied what Paul called the law. It was weak, it was beggarly, it was the elements of the world, even the Jewish law wasn't any different from the pagan religion and rituals, they were elements of the world. They were earthly. They were physical. The law has absolutely no power to transform you and I. Paul said in the book of Romans that when the law came, it actually incited his fleshly passions. And instead of restraining them, it actually made him more apt to commit sins of the flesh. And so the Galatians were deviating from the very thing that had set them free. And he says, if you get circumcised, then all the benefits of the crucifixion are negated. And so in this passage that we're going to look at today, he reminds them that we belong to Christ and those who belong to Christ have crucified the affections and its desires. So it's not through legal 
rules, strict treatment of our body, that we get victory in our life. It is through the enablement and the empowerment and the moment-by-moment surrender to the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is what the Spirit looks like when it's in your life. It produces fruit. And notice that it's singular. And so I want to remind you again that when we are living and walking in the Spirit, we don't just get self-control without love. We don't get gentleness without joy. It is a composite. It's singular, the fruit. It's not fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit. And the fruit is this one characteristic that's Christ, and we get that in our life when we are walking in the Spirit. Now, I want to just give you the quick definition again. This is kind of a review of last week of what these characteristics and what these virtues are. But love, love is sacrifice. Love is a commitment. Love is not an emotion or a feeling, but it's a surrender. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lays down his life, Jesus said, for his friends. By this you will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. So it's a surrender, it's a commitment, it's a sacrifice. Love is unconditional. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to live up to anything. So love is an unconditional commitment to people. And love also expects absolutely nothing in return. It doesn't look for what it can get out of something. In fact, Paul warned that to think that that was what is love is exactly what the pagans think of, of love. Joy, joy is associated with hope. It's a future assurance of something that we don't actually have right now. And so hope is so crucial to joy. The God of hope will fill you with joy and peace in believing. So it's this hope for uh, that, that, that abounds in us by the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us this joy. Peace is rest, a state of tranquility. It is connected with the idea of a well-being and wholeness. And the Holy Spirit produces this. Long-suffering is the word for long-tempered. It means that it takes a long time for you to get aggravated with people. It's waiting on people to change without being exasperated with them. It's giving them time to grow. It's the very thing that brought you and I to salvation. Kindness is a pleasant, mild... Op- <clears throat> it's opposed to a harsh and bitter spirit. Uh, it's kind by the way we treat people who are ungrateful, people who are ungenerous. That's the way we really see kindness. Goodness um, really has the idea of just generosity. It's, it's being willing to, to give of yourself, of your time. That's what goodness is. Faithfulness is a characteristic of being reliable, being dependable, someone that you can count on. That's a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. Faith is reliance, complete reliance on the very character and nature of God. Meekness is not to be uh, misunderstood as someone who is taken advantage of or someone who has weak character. But meekness really is strength that's just under control, that's, that's, that's moderated. 
by, by the Spirit's constraints, Moses was called the meekest man on all the earth, and yet we see times where Moses felt exasperated with people. He uh, felt at his wit's end at times. But the, the book of Proverbs reminds us that when we don't, when we lack this meekness, when we lack this strength to control our emotions, that we're really exposing ourselves as a city without walls. It's mildness in the face of being wronged by others. That's meekness. Um, Jesus often displayed this. Paul displayed this. Silas, when they were in the Philippian jail, um, they... They didn't get walked on. In fact, when they were going to be released, they said, hey, we've been beaten uncondemned as Romans, and now we expect you to come and, and release us. Self-control, uh, it's the virtue of yielding your passions to the mastery of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is eg kratos. Eg for the, is the preposition for inside of us. Kratos is strength, so it's this inner strength that dwells inside of us. There's a word that's spelled almost exactly like it, only it's got the preposition ah, which means without strength or without control. And Aristotle actually wrote about these two words and how they are contrasted to each other. Eg kratos, or self-control, inner Strength to restrain your, your appetites and your desires. But Aristotle didn't understand the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't understand that, but he talked about the virtue of, of being able to restrain yourself as opposed to akratos, without self-restraint. And he wrote about it in his seventh book of his Nicomachean Ethics. And then Paul must have been very knowledgeable of Aristotle's writing because he actually paraphrases a sentence out of Aristotle's writing and he says for those who are walking in the spirit there is no law against it and that's what Aristotle was trying to get at that when we have self-control we don't need laws to impose on us how to behave and how to act because it comes from within us and so this is what the Holy Spirit produces it is Christ-like character Love, joy, peace, and kindness, and goodness, and meekness, and self-control, and all these things come at once when we're walking in the Spirit. Now, he goes on to say that those who are Christ, but I want to just to, to, to camp just for a second on that phrase, against these things there's no law. Those who are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law, Galatians 5.16. You're not under it. You're not under its condemnation. You're not under its control. And you're not under its authority. And against these things, there's no law. So when you are walking in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, it cannot be achieved by a law. There is no law that can give you life, Paul said in Galatians 3.21. He says, if righteousness came by the law, then we would have life through the law. But love cannot be milligated to you through a command without the Holy Spirit's enablement. Joy cannot be part of your Christian experience without the Holy Spirit's Enablement to do that. Long-suffering. 
Now, we can give you commands that says, yes, we ought to love one another, and Jesus gave us those commands. I'm not saying that these things aren't something that, we can't, that, that we're not commanded to do. Yes, we are commanded to do them, but Paul says there is no law that can produce these things from within you. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. Life is required. And then when he says against these things there is no law, the other idea is that you don't need a law to monitor your behavior, to make sure that you're doing these things. The law was merely a tutor, remember? The law was a temporary fix until the seed came. Paul in Romans in Galatians chapter 4 likens the law to a well, I'm really having trouble with my thoughts this morning. Maybe ate the wrong stuff. <laughs> I don't know. He likens it to a guardian and a steward. And you are immature when you needed a guardian to check your behavior. You are immature with your resources, your finances, and you needed a steward over you. And when we were under the law, it was because we were immature. We couldn't be trusted with our inheritance. But when the fullness of time came, God said, okay, now I can trust you with everything that a Christian has. I don't need to put a guardian in your life. I don't need to put a tutor. I don't need to put a schoolmaster. I don't need to walk you by the hand. I don't need to make sure that you do your homework and memorize your, law, your, your studies. You now have the Holy Spirit. He is producing the fruit in your life. And so when Paul says, against these things, there's no law, what he's also saying is, one, the law cannot mandate for you to behave this way because the law is powerless to do that. In fact, the law is so weak that all it could do was point out your sin and then give you even a desire to do those things that you don't want to do. So the law, against these things, there's no law, but also that you don't need this this regulator in your behavior anymore. And then lastly, when he says you are not under law, and against these things there is no law, when you are walking in the Spirit, you will be fulfilling all the moral requirements of the law. If you want to fulfill the law, you don't focus on the law, you die to the law. Paul, in the book of Romans, says that when a person is dead, he is freed from the law. And he uses an example of marriage. He says, as long as a husband is alive and a woman marries somebody else, it's considered adultery. But if the husband dies, he is free to marry another. So death sets you free from the law. And this is where you and I find ourselves. We are dead to the law as a means of producing right living. 
So those who are Christ, let's look at verse 24. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that's, that's who you and I are. We are Christ. We belong to Christ. To belong to Christ means that I have severed all attempts at self-righteousness. I belong to Christ. I am not trying to achieve righteousness through my own effort. I have all that righteousness imputed to me. I have severed myself from sin. I belong to Christ. You belong to Christ this morning. The Bible tells us that you and I have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your spirit, which is his. We belong to Christ. I have been severed from all attempts in my own goodness to please God. I cannot do it. I'm I'm freed from that. And I'm also severed from my sin. I've walked away from sin. There has been a decisive break with sin and there's a new acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is my authority and my Lord and my Savior. Those who belong to Christ. That's what that means. And then he gives a phrase to describe those who do belong to Christ. What is our new status? Our new status is that we have crucified our flesh and our affections. So that's a new status that we enter into vicariously with Jesus. We have been crucified with Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, in a real sense, your passions... Your lusts and your desires, they were also nailed to the cross with Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. Those who belong to him, those who have been bought by him, those who have acknowledged that I can't save myself, those who have acknowledged that I walked away from sin, I now belong to him and my flesh has been crucified. I am along with Jesus. Turn over to Romans chapter 6, really quick, and then we'll look at Romans 7, and then we'll go back over to Galatians, chapter 2. So flip over to Romans real quickly. Romans 6, 6. And 7. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Those who belong to Christ, we've entered into this union vicariously. Through the person of Christ, we've entered into this. The old man was crucified with him, and what is the result? That the body of sin might be done away with. Katargedzo. It might be destroyed. It is rendered inactive, inoperable. It is no longer our master, the body of sin. It has been crucified. Those who belong to Christ, they have gone through this process. It's a real, actual event. 
The cross was a historical event, and for you and I, it's a spiritual historical event in the sense that we were there with Christ, and our, our flesh has been done away with. Why? That we're no longer the slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. That's you and I. That's our new position. Now go to chapter 7 and verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law. That is our position. We've been delivered from it. We've been delivered from the law. Having died to what we were held by. Those who belong to Christ have crucified it. So that we should not serve in the so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And in Galatians 2:21 Galatians 2, 19 through 21, Paul says this, I, through the law, died to the law. I have been crucified. The law is no longer a means for me to achieve any righteousness. It's no longer a way. It it, it never was, and it's not going to produce the Christian life in me. So I, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live unto God. So this is our new position. And Paul often in his writings will explain a position and then right behind it he will follow it with an imperative. He'll say, this is who you are. You belong to Christ. Your old man has been crucified with Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, you have been risen with Christ. So he will will tell you a spiritual reality that is yours, because you've entered into a union with Jesus. That's what what has happened supernaturally. And because of that, then he will give some commands practically what to do with our new position. The old man has been crucified. We just read that in Romans 6. But then he goes on to say, Therefore, now I want you to reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Then he says, I want you to yield your members to God as alive from the dead. And then he says, I want you to present yourselves to God. So those are imperatives as a result of us being crucified. The same thing he does in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, if therefore you have been raised with Christ. The if there is a first class condition which means it's a reality. So he's telling the Colossians, he says, since, because you have been risen with Christ, that is your new position. We were crucified with Christ, weren't we? Our flesh was crucified. Our sin was crucified. Our desires for those things was nailed to the cross. But also our resurrection with Christ is just as real. And so he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, then he gives the imperative command to follow it. Since and because I am raised with Christ, what am I supposed to do now? I am to seek the things that are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. I am to set my affections on things above and not on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ. And then thirdly, I am to mortify the deeds of my body. So because of the spiritual realities that you and I possess, because of our union with Christ... We are to practically live them out. So Paul says here in Galatians that I have been crucified. He says that those who belong to Christ, 
we now are owned by him. I have no way of self-righteousness. I declare Christ alone. I belong to him. So what does he give us as our command now? Those that are Christ, he says then in verse 25, here it is, if or since or because, it's again, it's a first class condition, because this is where our life really is, here's the command. And it's an it's a exhortation, it's even stronger than the imperative mood. This is not the imperative mood, but it's used imperatively, but it's a strong exhortation. Whenever you see in your King James Bible or New King James or an NASV, those are really good literal translations, and you find the helping verb let, that lets you know that it's switching into a different mood in the original language. And it's an exhortation to do something. It's a strong plea. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, Paul uses two different Greek words for walk. When he's In Galatians 5.16, he says, let us walk in the Spirit. It's the Greek word para, which means around. Pateo means to walk. So I'm to, to walk. My entire life is just to be walking all saturated, all in the Spirit. Moment by moment, I'm yielding myself. But here he uses a completely different Greek word. The Greek word that he uses here is a military term. And it means to march in order in ranks. And, and I want you to just picture yourself now this morning as a soldier, and you're marching, and you're marching along with other soldiers, and you're calling out your cadences so that you keep in harmony and you keep in step with each other. That's the word that Paul is using here. And so I have to know keenly the mind of the Spirit because when the Spirit says about face, I've got to be able to listen to it and say, okay, I've got to keep marching with Him. And that's the word that Paul is using here. And so it's, it's a conscious awareness. It's an understanding that I now am taking my orders and to walk along with Christ. So I, I want to back up just a bit here um, about our crucifixion with Christ. I, I had a a quote that I wanted to share with you. It's a man who wrote about 150 years ago, and a lot of people don't aren't familiar with him. He's not somebody that you would very hear him quote. His name was James Denny, but he wrote a book called The Death of Christ, and he was talking about our union in the death of Christ, and this is what he wrote. He says, we must understand that this crucifixion of the flesh is involved also in Christ's crucifixion. It is affected by it. Our flesh, I mean, the works of the flesh, they're horrific, aren't they? I mean, we read that list, and it's just, and it's disgusting. We, we don't want that in our lives. We, we look at that and we say, man, I, I see those things surface in my life sometimes. But they were affected in reality with Christ. And that's what, what he's saying, what, the, what James Denny was saying here. Whoever sees into the secret of Calvary is conscious that the doom of sin is in it. We need to meditate deeply on the cross everything that you and I 
could not do, it was nailed to the cross. We have triumphed over our sin. We've triumphed over the devil. We've triumphed over the world in the power of the cross. And that's why it's such a wonderful symbol of Christianity. Because that is where our victory lies. And so when we deeply meditate on Calvary and what was affected for us at the cross, we know that sin's doom was nailed to it. To take it as real, to stand in any real relationship to the crucifixion, means death to our flesh with its passions and desires. End of quote. What has been affected once and for all by the cross of Christ must be worked out in practice. So we need to be aware when we are in the flesh. We need to be conscious of that. If I'm going to walk in the Spirit because I'm not living in the Spirit and march and and step with it, I need to recognize, I need to be sensitive to that list that Paul gave us. And there's four broad categories that I need to be just keenly aware of. And the first one is in the area of sexuality. And I think that affects men so much more than our ladies. That's just the way God has wired us. But we need to be so cautious about what we think about, about what we look at, about our dialogue, our jokes. It needs to be pure. It needs to be clean. And if I'm going to walk in the Spirit and keep step in step with Him, I need to be so keenly aware that when those kind of appetites show themselves, that I immediately, quickly confess it if I'm going to keep in line with the Holy Spirit. Second... I must know the mind of God. I've got to fill myself with the Word of God. I've got to be filled with the Bible. I've got to have the words of Christ dwelling in me richly. If I am going to walk in the Spirit, this book is Spirit-breathed. And there's no way that I can keep in step with the Spirit if I don't know the mind of God and the mind of the Spirit. Thirdly, if I'm going to walk in the Spirit, I need to move in direction with the Spirit And I need to look for the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. Am I loving? Am I joyful? Am I at peace? Am I exhibiting kindness? Am I gentle? Am I mild in my mannerisms? Is my strength under control? Am I exhibiting self-control, temperance? And if I'm not, then I know I'm not walking in the Spirit. So I want to just give us a quick summary. The last part of this chapter, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll read it too. Let us not become conceited. Greek word is vain, doxa, empty glory. It's pride. It's the ugliness that legalism produces. It's boasting when you actually have absolutely nothing to boast in. Provoking one another. A combative spirit. Again, this is what was happening to the Galatians because they were under, putting themselves back under the law and they were envying one another. So we're to stop sin at its very core. So I want to give us a quick, quick summary of how to live a victorious Christian life. First of all, Let's go back to 5.16. Walk 
in the Spirit. This is an imperative command. It's a present imperative. So what that means is that moment by moment, I'm to acknowledge, I'm to surrender, I am to yield, and I am to present myself to the Lord. Walking in the Spirit doesn't mean that I strive. It doesn't mean that I work. It doesn't mean that I try to obey more laws. That's not what walking in the Spirit means. Walking in the Spirit really means surrender. I am dead. I want the Holy Spirit now to walk and live his life out through me, and I yield myself, I present myself, I surrender myself to the power of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, one, I cannot fulfill the desires of my flesh when I'm doing that. It's impossible. Because the Spirit of God is contrary to the flesh. It's a double negative. You cannot do it. But the flesh is ever-present when I'm walking in the Spirit. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to be keenly aware so that I can quickly confess it, and then present again my thoughts and my yieldedness to Christ. The second part of spiritual victory is I need to be able to identify the areas of my weaknesses. I've got to be able to identify them, and they should be very obvious to every one of us. And I think one of the things that Paul really hits hard here is our personal relationships. Look at the way the flesh manifests itself in personal relationships. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies. A few questions that we can ask ourselves when the flesh starts to show its ugly surface. How do we act when our personal wants are not being met? In our personal relationships, when our wants are not being met, do we get jealous? Do we get easily provoked? Do we get bitter? Do we have outbursts of anger? Do we have a decisive spirit? Do we insist on being right? Do we have any behavior patterns that lead to excessive or crude actions? That's when I am walking in the flesh. So, first of all, I walk moment by moment if I'm going to have spiritual victory. I need to be able to identify quickly when my flesh is showing itself. Thirdly, I need to understand that only the Holy Spirit, that's the only thing that can produce Christ's likeness. Nothing else can. Laws can't. Self-discipline can't. Aesthetic lifestyles can't. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces Christ-like character. Laws can't do that. This can only come through the indwelling of the Spirit. When I'm walking in the Spirit, you don't need the law as your schoolmaster. And when you are walking under the Spirit, you can be sure that you will not violate God's moral laws. Fourth, you need to acknowledge the fact that you belong to Christ. We don't do that often, do we? But this is a part of what Paul writes here. Walk moment by moment, identify my fleshly nature, only know that the Spirit is the only thing that can produce Christ's likeness, 
and then acknowledge that I belong to Christ. What that means is, number one, you have vicariously participated in Christ's crucifixion. You were there. Your flesh was nailed to the cross vicariously. You need to have a real sense that the resurrection power of Christ lives in you. A real sense that you are alive with the resurrection, and now it is my responsibility. You see, it's not just some kind of passive, okay, let the Spirit of God just live in me and, and walk in me. No, it is my responsibility now to keep in step with the Spirit. I need to be sensitive I, and, and to keep in step with the Spirit, I'm just going to go over this one more time really quickly. One, to keep in step with the Spirit, I acknowledge when I'm out of step. And that is when the flesh manifests itself. Two, I need to know the voice of God by cultivating an intimate relationship with God. I, I cannot stress this enough. Listen, church, family that today, if you will take this book and you will say that this is God's love letter to me and I want to just invest my heart, my soul, my mind in it, you will be walking in step with the Spirit. Don't look at this book as some kind of academic book. Look at this book as as a heaven-sent letter. It's God's breath to you and I. And that's the way I walk in the Spirit. And then number three, you and I have an objective standard. I don't have to go on my feelings. Am I walking in the Spirit? Do I have goosebumps today? Now, sometimes you get that, don't you? You know, somebody will tell me a story, and man, the hair on my arm will go up, you know, and I don't know what that is. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. But that's not a good indicator all the time. In fact, we can't can't rely on, on any of those things. But we have an objective measure that says that I am keeping in step. My emotions, my feelings are not reliable. But the reality of this uh, 522 and 23, that's a way that I can know that I'm walking in the Spirit. And it doesn't take long for you to lose your joy, does it? Tracy and I got some news yesterday. And man, I mean, it was like somebody just sucker punched me right in the gut. And I lost all my joy. And you know what brought my joy back? My circumstances have not changed one bit. Hope. That's what brought my joy back. Abraham, against all hope, believed in hope. And I knew I wasn't walking in the Spirit because I had lost all my joy. When I have an outburst of wrath, I know I am not walking in the Spirit. That's something objective that I can... When I am saying something that's unkind, when I am bitter, when I am envious, when I am coveting, 
When I'm not getting what I want and I lash out at other people, that's an objective way for me to say I am not walking in the Spirit. So four things again to have spiritual victory. When I get up in the morning, when you get up in the morning, and not just in the morning, you do this all day long if you need to. You say, I am going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to consciously surrender and yield my thoughts, my actions, my deeds under the Spirit's control. I'm going to quickly identify when my flesh shows itself. I'm going to realize that the Holy Spirit is the only way that I can live this. I'm not going to try to regulate it with laws. And I'm not going to do spiritual penance to beat myself up. Oh, how much I like to do that. Because we all feel so unworthy, don't we? But just accept His grace and His love and His forgiveness and get back in step with the Spirit. And fourthly, remind yourself that you belong to Christ and everybody who belongs to Christ has crucified the affections and the lust. And since that's where you and I are living, that is where you and I are living. That is our new reality. It's my responsibility and your responsibility to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. That's a lot to do, isn't it? And only by the grace of God can we do it. But the victory is ours. We don't have to live defeated Christian lives. And as a church, we can permeate this community with Christians who are Christ-like when we are walking in the Spirit. And that's what brings Christ, and that's what brings Him glory. So let's ask God to do that for us. Father God... We thank you that you have given us everything.